So how's that Olympics treating you? It's pretty good. I, you know, I think, what was it? I, the China Olympics. I don't know why, but London a little bit less so. But the China Olympics, I remember everyone stayed up to midnight or one watching some of these plot lines. Whether it was the gymnastics, whether it was Usain Bolt. Is that how it is? Usain or Usain? I can't remember. Sure. Yes, Bolt. All, that's, I remember the last name. <laughs> Ironically, because he's a sprinter. Yeah, that is good. There were a lot of plot lines. It was the first real time Michael Phelps was going to try and win like 80,000 medals. So I remember everyone was always up. I don't know if you ever saw the opening ceremonies to China, but it was pretty amazing. Yeah. Basically, it put everyone else to shame. But this one, I'm watching it. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because a lot of those same characters, I hate to say it that way, but a lot of those same folks are still around. But they're on like their mid to early 30s run where they're like, I'm old. I can't do this much longer, but this is my last time. I'm surprised. I would have thought like professional sports, you're kind of out of it by your late 20s, but they're they're still going. Phelps is yeah. mid 30s, right? Mid th- uh, 31. 31. That's been unique for me. You know, hearing people described as old men or old women, you know, kind of over the hill and they're five to seven years <laughs> younger than me. Mm-hmm. That's that's not good for the ego, but no, I'm just kidding. But more just in that surreal sense of I can't imagine what it's like to have the one thing you do for a living be done to be officially retired. And at least in terms of academia, that's the age you're normally starting or about Ooh, to yeah, start that's right. a job. Yeah. And they're done. And, you know, I was 31. I didn't have a job yet. And I'd never been gainfully employed. I was still finishing up my doctorate. I think I got hired at 32. So yeah, just that that kind of mind warp. I, I can understand why so many people lose their money. They have no other transferable skill. I mean, how do you, even if you've made a lot of money, if you're living like it's never going to end, you know, some of them get depressed, all this stuff, because, man, you're you're not even at midlife crisis yet, and you're done career-wise. Yeah, and what's your second act after having multiple golds? I mean, that that's tricky. Yeah. I, I was, I've watched some. I, I really am missing the sports gene, so I, I just pretend to be interested in competitions of athletic prowess but uh but it is kind of gripping the the olympics the coverage they're always changing and so it is kind of like what's next what's next they they do a good job of you're not just watching someone swim for three hours which would be kind of dreadful if you've ever been to a swim meet it's really bad sitting up in those bleachers and it's hot and humid (laughs) and then you just watch them race for 20 minutes so uh, they do a good job switching around we had a, a visitor from grad school a friend of mine from cambridge who is in law and um she's italian and it was kind of weird watching with her because the Americans dominate and she would kind of occasionally say, Oh look, an Italian swimming finally. But we would have, you know, just remind you how big and how much advantages we have as a country that we've got so many great athletes and such a legacy there and, and smaller countries are really trying to dominate one, maybe one thing. So. Yeah. I mean, you got to think the gene pool factor alone, right? So, I mean, with the number of people in America the chances of one of them being really good at the shot put or, you know, swimming mm-hmm. or because it takes not just skill and desire. You have to have a certain physique with cer- some of these sports. I mean, you, you don't see any five foot volleyball players you right, know, out no, there. They're all, no. they're all six foot. And, you know, the average woman is not six foot, six foot one, that kind of a thing. So one, yeah, the, the number of people increases the odds. And yeah, the, the, the heritage of it, 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 it is. But it is it's a it's a surreal thing. No, I'm like you. I'm not a 
guy who just watches sports because there's somebody putting a ball somewhere and with a net. You know, I'm I'm just not that. There's a couple of things I watch, but you know, my joke is: does this sport involve a net? And is a high score good or bad? It's good so, or bad. Yeah, because in right. golf you want low, but in bowling you yeah. want high. So it's like, is there a <laughs> net? Right. Is there a ball? And, and how's the score work out here? All right. Exactly. Anyway. And, and do I need to read like five books to understand the rules <laughs> of why, you know, that's the problem with baseball. I, I hear baseball is fun to watch, not in Florida weather, but, you know, if you go watch a baseball game, just because you're just kind of leisurely sitting there. That's what I've been told. And it's, and it's interesting on some level. But... I'm watching on TV and, you know, there's so much insider talk and what they're doing. And I'm like, I don't know. A guy throws the ball and the other guy hits it. No. Yeah. And there, there's a weird nerdery with all the stats too, memorizing stats yeah. and names and history. So you can right. really nerd out strangely on sports, which is not thought of as nerdish. Yeah. And I'm horrible at math. So that's not going <laughs> to work for me as baseball. Um, but no, I, I find the Olympics more interesting. I think the, the national thing, like... Like last night, the the sprinters were on, and I found that pretty interesting because they're actually friends. They train together, and there was like a gamesman like silliness between this guy Bolt and a guy from Canada. They were kind of teasing each other and smiling. Bolt slowed up. It was just the semifinal, so it wasn't the end. And he like sort of jogging more or less. What would be for you and me an unattainable sprint was for him jogging. That's <laughs> but crazy. He started jogging and looking over at his side and smiling at his friend. I just thought it was neat. You know, how often do you see a guy from Jamaica and a guy from Canada who should be, quote unquote, mortal enemies actually laughing? So I, I find that like international thing kind of really nice. You see a lot of good sportsmanship, I guess is the word. Uh huh. Anything where it's like, well, this is the best person ever at this right now. World record type thing. I saw a physicist who did a report on how fast the human body can ever actually maybe run. And he's fa- figured that like for a hundred yard dash right now, they're in the 9.5 second range, which 15 years ago to break 10 seconds was considered impossible. Just about now they're in 9.5. Huh. He says 9.3 is about the point where muscle strength and bone density compete with each other. You have to have strong enough muscles to like a horse. Like if you run too fast on stick legs, you're going to break a leg. But you have to have muscle to go faster. So he says about 9.3 and the human can't go any faster. I was just like, wow, like we're almost at the, the point where humans can't run any faster. So I find that kind of, I maybe it's the historian in me. I, I find that interesting, but not every sport. I'm not watching, you know, the five different versions of swimming the same distance over and over and over again. Like that doesn't appeal to me. That doesn't draw me in. But, you know, I'll watch a few. Like Have everything. you seen the show The Expanse or read about that series, the book series? No. Uh, it's on Sci-Fi Network. They did one season, but it's it's a sci-fi show, obviously, and it's in the future. Well, obviously, I guess maybe not. Most show, most sci-fi is in the future. I guess not necessarily. <laughs> anyway, oh, that's as, true. That's as true. I climb out of this hole, uh, The Expanse. <laughs> uh, it, it follows humans have settled in the belt around mars and have also colonized mars and their physique is changing so humans are taller because of a different gravity so if we colonize the universe this is where i'm going if we colonize it then we really could change the human ability to run yeah part of the reason why a lot of sci-fi aliens are always so tall and thin that kind of wasp like kind of wispy i'm not sure what the word is um like real thin you know they have long longer arms I've been told was in part based on the idea that, yeah, lower gravity, you don't have to have as thick a muscle structure or bone structure, so you can be quite thin, which I immediately thought, 
well, why would they take over our planet? They're going to be like, ow, <laughs> the whole time. My back. Edna, quick, give me a chair. It, it, oh. it, and unless you have come some kind of gravity sci-fi technology, you would you can't ever get away from gravity. It's not like you can just go lay on the beach and feel better. You just no. think, oh, it's heavy and I'm hot. So and just I'm hot. everywhere it sucks. So it would be pretty Let's miserable. Let's go back to Mars. This sucks. <laughs> Screw this planet. Yeah, yeah, that is funny. Yeah, they do some of that on The Expanse where the humans are taller and they interrogate a guy because it, there's a lot of politics because it basically there's a civil war among humans between the Martians that are humans that grew up on Mars and the Belters and Earth. And they, they interrogate a guy on Earth just by kind of setting him up against a wall and that leaving him like that for 10 hours is kind of a torture because his body huh. can't handle the gravity being held up. Oh, wow. And so it's oh, kind wow. of some neat stuff there. I think it's gotten renewed for a second season. Well, they talk about uh, when astronauts come back from the space station yeah. or something. They're an inch or two taller. The, the, the really? spine decompresses. I knew yeah. they had muscle issues, muscle loss, but the yeah. spine too. Interesting. Yeah. So. It's kind of like hanging, functionally hanging upside down for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my, my kids and I watched a, a YouTube, I don't know if it was a video series or something, but it was from the space station. It's very interesting because I never thought about it this way. You can sleep in whatever position you happen to want to Velcro yourself to the wall. Weird. So they have these like little cubbies, but they're standing up. Why would you lay down? There's no gravity. Mm -hmm. But the woman gets into it upside down, at least according to our sense of gravity. She goes, there is no blood rushing to my head. I don't feel upside down. I feel the exact same as I do if I'm the other way around. And my kids just had like the, the Neo and the Matrix, like, whoa, like kind of a thing going on. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. They, uh, one of Tim Burton's Batman movies from the late 80s, 90s had Bruce Wayne. You see him at night and he, it's like he can't sleep in the bed and then he goes and hangs upside down and sleeps. Yes. And, and it, it makes no sense. It makes like, no what? sense. Like no one, even if you have a bat fetish, you just can't. No, humans no. can't do that. And I was like, oh, no. Tim Burton, you got to push it. But yeah, you gotta still push a good it. movie. It, the, the illusion that Batman has or that Bruce Wayne has actual superpowers that makes him Bat-esque. Right. Versus a man with money and gadgets. Yes. And and a vendetta against everybody. Everybody. Because of what happened in that alley. Right. So many years ago. Yeah. I think you need some therapy. I don't know. I, I know. Have you started speaking of uh, sort of spookier gothic type things? Have you started watching Stranger Things, this new Netflix show? I am on episode three, but it is all the talk, isn't it? People are really digging the show. I, I love it. I mean, it, it it's such, such an homage to the late 80s and 90s, especially the music. You've got that kind the of opening scene, throbbing yeah, keyboard and it comes in occasionally and it just took me back to the Terminator and, and Alien. So many of those movies, they don't do orchestral background music. They do these really strong keyboard kind of Yanni, Miami Vice type stuff, the old Miami Vice. Yeah, what and, was that? I mean, come on. Every, if you know. think about it, you hear it, that music, and you're like, up oh, 80s, yeah, immediately. Immediately. It's, everyone needed a keyboard with a high amount of synthesizing going on. Yeah, and we've now re rejected that. It's all orchestral. In fact, I read it, something said kind of classical music in a weird way triumphed in the movies in recent decades, because huh. that's what we do now. It's some version of, of orchestral and not keyboard, faults, pop, or whatever type things. Yeah. Yeah, I remember with Lord of the Rings, people actually would buy the soundtrack because they liked the, the music so much. Mm -hmm. The sort of the strings and all that stuff and the background and the themes. Yeah. So, yeah. But uh, Stranger Things, I'd love all that and the whole thing with the phone and, and, you know, having a corded phone and just all those bits that remind me of 
uh, of that era that I grew up in. And uh, really fun. It is sad that Winona Ryder, who used to be kind of the hot high school kid, is now playing the hot high school kid's parent. So it's just (laughs) like, oh, no, what happened? She does it perfect, though. Yeah, she's kind of like needs a bath and a good nap because she looks horribly tired and like stressed the whole time. She cries too much. It reminds me of Breaking Bad. There's a mistake of having a female lead grieving and her only response is crying. So yeah, no, I agree a little with that. I do. Game of Thrones doesn't do that. She's no. like, my kids died. I've got a sword. So I kind of Or the, the alternative mom with one of the kids, uh, the one with the feather banks, you know, her, her, her way of coping with anything is just sheer anger and she hates her husband. Like, <laughs> like this, there's no likable, strong woman. Yeah, I think I think that could be a weakness. Yeah. Could be a weakness, but um, everything else, they mount on the bikes and, and with the headlamps, which I didn't have, but reminds me of E.T., it's got the poltergeist bit with the kid missing and they even have a, yeah. they mention that cause he's got tickets to poltergeist. So they kind of nod to the origins, but there's a lot of eighties stuff and, and fun. And I think the girl that's playing this character and I still don't know what her backstory is, but she does 11. a great yeah. 11. She does a great job of kind of looking surprised at everything, you know? She, no, I, she's amazing. how they got that many kid actors and they are both funny, poignant, and yet they can do the serious kind of uh, sci-fi thing is that's hard. Yeah. It's like super, super eight, whatever that was. Uh, I love that JJ. Movie. Yeah. 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 But it, it takes, yeah. If you, if you mash it up with other things, that's what you got. Uh, the bit I always remember from super eight and we both have multiple children. And, and I think of this scene where there's two sets of kids doing that movie in super eight. And one is an only child and they'll show him in his house and it's dead quiet and then it cuts like he calls his friend on the phone and he's yeah. got like siblings and always in the background, they're just like fighting and wrestling and knocking <laughs> right. stuff over. And so I think yeah. of that because I'm like, yeah, that is. So one kid has got this quiet and the other kid is it's total pandemonium in his house all the time. And I'm like, yeah, oh, that would be my house. So yeah. that's my house. Yeah. No, no, no quiet. When in doubt, hit the kidneys. You know, that that's what my that's boys right. do. No, we had like, yeah, two years before Owen was born that it was dead quiet and. We thought it was it's so funny because we thought it was so hard. Oh, kids are hard. Man. <laughs> oh, they're down for a three-hour nap. I guess I better, you know, take a nap myself yep. and eat, eat some chips. And now it's like, stop hitting each other. <laughs> no, hit them harder. Yeah, good. I mean, stop hitting. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're kind of both cheerleader and referee for the fights, you know. Definitely. Yeah, and you wonder why as a child your parents are always kind of saying, work it out or I don't care or something. You know, like they didn't want to get involved in, and now you realize it's just fatigue. Like they just, you just get, you're like, I, I don't yeah. even want to know what happened. Just, just go eat your dinner. So yeah, I've started to warn my my daughter because she can think logically and chronologically. Like she can look ahead. I'm like, look, you really don't want to beat up on your brother right now. She's <laughs> like, why? It's like he's gonna be like 80 pounds heavier than you before you know it, and he's gonna hold you down and pull your hair, and uh, you know, pay it forward, pay it forward. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So you're enjoying um, uh, the Stranger Things. I always want to call it Needful Things, which is that Stephen King book that I never finished. Yeah. But Stranger Things, I, I really am. Yeah, no, I it got such a big like, oh, you have to watch this kind of a push with friends of mine that you know I turned it on. I was like immediately like, oh, this is great. But always, it's always the case. It is actually a, more of a subtle movie than you, you would think. Like it's it's slowly building up to like like half of the plot. You don't you're not even sure what's happening mm-hmm. yet. And from what I understand, there's still some threads left unexplored by the end, all that stuff. So they're teasing for the second season. Fun. That's uh, that's the advantage of television. You basically got an eight-hour movie 
versus a two-hour movie. You know, actually, maybe that's why movies are longer today. You've got so many two-and-a-half-hour movies. They're having to compete yeah. in terms of plot with with what is um, on television, which is kind of a long story arc over yeah. one season or five seasons. And or, yeah, like you mentioned Breaking Bad. I mean, here's a how many shows were in a, a season? 20? You know, 18 to 20, somewhere in that range? Maybe it's a bit shorter. I, th- I think those ran a little shorter. 20 was the old standard. Yeah. So let's say it was like 14, 15. Um, but those are 14 or 15 hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Times per, six per seasons, season. right? So, yeah, it's a huge, huge, massive epic. I mean, The Godfather is kind of getting at that with these long movie one and two and three. It's kind of a continuous story. But, yeah, yeah. we really kind of hu- hunger for that at the epic, really. Something yeah. ongoing. Whereas a movie, you know, you can kind of follow a movie, a, a standard movie. It's got first opening has got to introduce you to the characters and then you have the problem and then you have the resolution, the three arcs and it's over pretty quick. No, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's certainly what we want in our books, right? I mean, we want a long arc like that. I mean, try to think of a successful sci-fi fantasy, whatever you want to call it, any of those genres that isn't at least, at least a trilogy. Right. Ever since Lord of the Rings, it's just like you have to have the trilogy. And I think part of it is, if you're going to have that many characters, you have to have some way to resolve plots. They can't just be one-off, single-chapter type thing. It can't, be, it can't be episodic, put it that way. Right. Another bit I love about uh, Stranger Things is the whole high school dynamic, and it reminds me of Freaks and Geeks and, and Heathers and it these does, other things yeah. where you've definitely got the nerds and the jocks and the and, and the kind of the, the, the cliques and the stereotypes. And, and it reminds you how hard it is being a kid and a teenager, having to deal with those issues. Yeah. And I do not want to live in that town. I mean, that's <laughs> a town. I mean, the whole thing is just like, it, it, it's so, I don't know how to put it, but you know, it feels like there's like 10 people living there and everyone knows everybody's business. And like the, the, uh, Winona Ryder's uh, older son, the one who's left, he's sort of pining for high school, but mm. yet he's way too old to be in high school, that kind of thing. I, yeah, at first I almost thought that was her husband. So he is, the actor is a bit old for that role, I think. He looks yeah. way too old for that. But, And he reminds me of American Beauty. Remember that character yes. with the fo- yeah. on the outside with the camera? He's kind of that type of character. But yeah, really clever. Very, very clever uh, show. Two brothers I saw write and direct it. Not the Wachowski yeah. siblings, but someone else. And I, I need to, I need to the look Duffer. them up. The Duffer Brothers. Yeah. They've, they've really done nothing except this. This is like their first real, apparently, entry into like mainstream pop culture, as far as I can tell. Uh, I, I looked up, like, had they done much else? And the answer was no. Huh. And I don't know how they sold it. I guess it was that, that strong of a plot. And how great is Netflix to take a gamble on them and say, yeah, we're going to oh, do yeah. this thing. Uh, and even the credits, the opening bit is very 80s, that sort of the the images well i i I sometimes try to figure out like all right how much did this cost them like did they actually spend a lot of money on this and if you think about it it's it's probably actually was a a a pretty solid gamble because they just had to pick some small town that was had to pay the actors but like there's not massive sets with cgi like that's the thing that's really cool about it right is it's not cgi i think i don't even think there's really much cgi at all i mean hardly i've seen like a couple scenes which actually speaks to the idea that a wonderful story does not need special effects, Mr. Lucas. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, a great story could have just you know, just the suspense of the moment, you know. 
yeah, we haven't seen the monster. They hint at it, and then they had a like a D and D game with the little figurine, but they've not had to actually do much with what, what is this, which monster. was a brilliant way to to sort of lead us into this idea that there's some monster, unnamed monster. It was perfect. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really marvelous. I do wonder about all the sets and all the '80s stuff. That must be an interesting job of finding all that stuff, you know, finding the old cars and making sure the set is accurate in terms of the phones and the, the The old TV, the old TV, what was it? 22 inches. And he's thrilled and, and the stereo system and all that. So yeah, cause they don't make any of this anymore. You're right. I mean, you're right about, I didn't even thought about that. The old, the phones are what grabbed me because they're so massive and they look, they just look kind of stupid. It's like, what? Like that, that doesn't look I mean, yeah, they look like you're putting like, you know, the, a Buick up to your face <laughs> to talk to somebody. With an annoying cable on it that's all twisted. Yeah. The vest was uh, Napoleon Dynamite when they had that super long cord, which I think my yeah. wife Jenny had as a, a kid. So like you go in the other room because you had a 40 foot <laughs> cord off your phone to go in there. Well, the only, the only thing unrealistic about that is the fact that, you know, in Napoleon Dynamite, it wasn't tangled up. So True. I wonder what happened to that... Um, was it brother, sister, husband, and wife that did Napoleon Dynamite? Nacho Libre? I think, I, I think so, yeah. They were so great. And I, they had another one, and I never saw it. Um, oh, they had one <laughs> They had one that had like a, an amazing trailer. It was um, Gentleman Broncos or something like this. Okay. And it was about a kid. It was, it was, the problem was I think it got a little stale, the idea, but it was basically a 1980s plot again. Mm-hmm. A poor kid, you know, living in a small town, but he wants to be a sci-fi writer and apparently he writes a pretty amazing piece, but he attends a, a comic book sci-fi writers convention and the guy who's giving the talk, he's only there to steal plots and write <laughs> his own books. You have to see the trailer, but I think it's, I think it's called gentlemen Broncos. It, it looks just hilarious. I, I want to watch it. I, Nacho Libre is terrific. I think it's as funny as Napoleon dynamite. That's a great Jack black. And that was the, the, yes, the yeah. film that made that and hilarious and Napoleon dynamite classic. So uh, hopefully we won't count them out in terms of pop culture. Well, you reading any good books? Segway bell. Ding, ding, ding. Um, I, at the moment, I'm looking for a new, a new fiction book. I'm looking for uh, a Simeon, our friend, was just visiting, and he gave me a set. I forget what the title of it is, but it's basically, it, it is a new like sci-fi kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's it's... I'm selling it so well because I can't even remember the title <laughs> off the top of my head. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. That's right. I'm reading that uh, Chernow, Chernow's biography of Hamilton since I'm still obsessed with the musical. Uh, oh, yeah. Chernow, I don't know how you say his last name, but a uh, massive book. Uh, so Massive. So yeah. I'm in maybe chapter three, so pretty, pretty early on. And, of course, we had to read a lot in grad school. Yeah, it's always. I think that's the problem with life is there used to be a time when I thought, I would be much better at reading more. That somehow would get quicker. Like, you know, the problem of how do you read with, with not enough time in the day, that kind of a question mm-hmm. that I, I felt over the years that, oh, well, as soon as I, you know, go to grad school, I'll have nothing but time on my hands. But it's just not the case. I'm always compromising. Yeah. Like, I have to compromise. So... I'm always looking for, okay, how do I read this book? Like, do I read it? <laughs> right, how do I read this lo- book? Long and, yeah, so it's just a weird question. Yeah. I, I had a conversation, I forget who I was talking one about. One word at a time, Ryan. One. one word at a time. One, yeah, one at a time. <laughs> one page at a time. Which, you know, is true, but it's also the question of, okay, do I read it, um, am I supposed to read this slowly, uh, or am I supposed to read this 
more, I guess the question is absorb the point and, and move on, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And sometimes the book forces you. Some of them are very complex, either fiction or nonfiction, and you really do have to ponder it yeah. and go slow and take, take small bites. You can't, you, know, you just can't sit and read Bart all day, or at least I can't. Yeah. I mean, you take it in bits and... I don't know if I've met anybody that really can. I mean, maybe there's somebody out there that does. But yeah, I don't know people that merely read, yeah, all that stuff all the time. As you read someone more, you get used to it. If you've read Bart thoroughly, you probably can read other bits of Bart thoroughly because you get so used to his style and his thing that you always know what he's talking about. But when you first pick it up, man, I remember struggling with church dogmatics with with Ralph Wood and, uh, and just being so, you know... Why are there little paragraphs on this page? I don't know what's happening. Help, this makes no sense. And there's Latin, and I don't know what this means, and and long, long paragraphs. So part of it is reading someone for a while, and I think that was part of what a PhD dissertation is doing, is when you study someone, you really do get the privilege of reading them for several years, and and it does start to make a sense. And then we go in as teachers, and these people, they've never read Baltazar, they've never read this stuff, and it's just so foreign to them. But... I don't know any way to get them up to speed besides just having them. It's like swimming. You just have to kind of jump in and start doing it. I struggle with how to assign it because the best way would be to read BART for a whole semester. But no one really wants to do that unless you're really a a BART scholar. And then uh, there's so many other things to read. So then you're forced into a reader, which gives you two pages of Bart. Well, if you thought it was hard before, you know, two pages, you really don't know. And all of a sudden you got Aquinas and then you really don't know. So it's that problem of of trying to give people depth and breadth. And I find a reader really helpful because you get a little taste. It's like a, like a, a, like a buffet line. And yet you're also, you don't really get to dig in deep and, um, I don't know any solution to that. I find genre-specific stuff works. Like, so in other words, that's been kind of the big mis- uh, the big switch for me is, okay, you know, starting with, you know, is this a fiction book? Dumb, que- I mean, obvious, obvious questions like that, not dumb questions, but obvious questions like, okay, it's a fiction book. Basically, I need to decide pretty quick if I want to read the whole thing or not. And if the answer is, no, I don't really like it, it's not my fave, then change it, like, like just drop. Mm-hmm. That, that I think, was the first step for me as a student was giving myself permission to say, you know what, this kind of isn't my thing right now. Or even worse, this is a bad book. Not my, <laughs> This book isn't very good. And if that's the case, then give myself permission to just quit, if that makes sense. Right. And the little secret of grad school and undergrad is, although your professors want you to read everything, they probably know you can't. Because like you yes. said, it's always a compromise. So part of it is the art of skimming and getting a sense of a book without necessarily reading it three times because you have other classes and other things. So, uh, yeah. you know, picking up, getting a feel for it, moving on. Yeah. And, and that, that's a real art that is hard to work on. I mean, the classic approach is reading the first sentence of every paragraph, uh, last sentence, read the conclusion, read the opening. I find the introductions really key. And, and having looked at books and worked with them, that's usually the author's going to come back, either wrote the introduction last or certainly going to work on it after writing the book. And that really gives you the summation of why they wrote it, what they really see as the key points, uh, why yeah. it's important. And so if you can frame that, you know, even write it in the, the, the first page of the book, you know, if it's a book you own or it's a library you don't care about, <laughs> uh, write it in there, those points and, and really holding that in your head. I know one of my undergrad teachers said the art of reading is 
trying to hold the argument and the supporting points in your head as you read the book. And that's actually really hard to do, but that if you can Very, work yeah. on multiple levels, then all of a sudden you start saying, Oh, now I know why they're doing this. And I know why they're doing yeah. that. And I think if I were to attack something like Bart, like essentially for the first time, I would start with just, I think I would, I think I would do two things. I would say, okay, are there any readers, any like short versions of like the best of the best? Are there any kind of quick synopses of like things to look for in that book, in that work? Things like like from Aquinas or whomever, like more historical figures like that. You do get a lot of more of that type of 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 a, of a response, I guess. Is oh, somebody has like the summa on the summa, like if that makes sense, right? And it makes a great deal more sense to start with that than to try to go. All right, summa. Questio 1.1. I'm going to read all of this, you know, the whole thing. And uh, What is this guy doing? It's a Questio. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, it's Latin for question. Oh, that makes no sense still. Right. You know, right. kind of thing. But assuming, again, that there's some, I don't know what the word is, like there's some way to read that, that somebody's already kind of helped you. That's probably how it'd start. And then, like you said, yeah, just read a little bit here and there, kind of beginning, middle, different things. Jump around, yeah. Just jump around. Yeah, like be okay with not math. Like I think that was always my problem when I was younger. Oh, I got to master this now. Right. Like not realizing that mastery takes a while. If it's like a one-off book, though, I wouldn't be quite so concerned about it, if that makes sense. If I were picking up something from David Ford, a modern person, if I were reading the new biography of so-and-so about, about this topic, I wouldn't have this great big oh, this is the new hot biography. I have to have this mastered kind of a thing going on. But instead, I would just try to enjoy it, I think, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and give it a chance. Sometimes uh, you were saying, sometimes you realize a book isn't what you thought or you don't like it or it's not working, But and, and that's true. And then sometimes I've thought that and then about halfway through gotten and thought, you know, I think this is a good book. So it's kind of neat when the author convinces you to change your mind. And, and yeah. like you said, you really just have to kind of stick with it, plow through it. And then you start to realize, oh, and I've had many books like that, that it really you have to read it a second time because the first time you're just trying to figure it out. Like, I don't, re I really don't know what he's doing. And then after a while you start yeah. to think, oh, I'm convinced. And then you have to go back and oh, figure yeah, out, exactly. you know, and, and like a, a Terry Eagleton and some other guys are that way. Um, you're kind of struggling to get in on the conversation. And, and yeah. that's tough for students. Um, I, I do like, like you said, the summa, the summa, those, those, there are plenty of books out there that introduce a writer. Now, a specialist yeah. hates those sorts of things because that's where you get mistakes in reading because one person said, this is always about this. And then everyone yeah. assumes it and they find it and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it takes somebody yeah. who comes along who reads closely, says, you know, this really wasn't what Bart was doing at all. And everyone goes, oh yeah, we didn't really read that closely. So the specialist will tell you not to do that. And you do get some weird introductions that are as long as the actual books. And so after yeah, a certain point, you're right. like, why not just read the book itself, the, the original text? But if you're not a specialist um, and you're just trying to get a grasp of systematic theology, then I agree. Read the introduction to Aquinas by someone else before you try to tackle that bad boy. And um, a reader will do that often. A good reader will have little introductions that help you yeah. know what to look for in the excerpt. And I think the fear for a lot of people is this idea that mastery is something existential, if that makes sense. Hmm. 
the the sense that oh well if I get to this point if I have, if I if I will have read this many books on this many topics I will know I know this field very well but the fact of the matter is is I I don't, I don't think that that experience is true hmm. you know I I don't find repeatedly that even on stuff that I'm again supposedly an expert on I don't find myself always going oh yeah I know everything about this right, like, I'm right. I'm good like rather it's it's you know where the gaps are. You know the things that you had to read faster than not. You, you know there's there's just sort of countless twists and turns. I would say, which is fine. But the I I remember I felt the same way when I finished my my PhD. It was like I would have thought I felt different, huh. you know, by now. I still feel kind of feel the same way I did before. But I also know that's not true. I also know that I can defend my thesis and I know a great deal about it and. I am technically an expert in the field and all that stuff, but yet you don't feel like you are, mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense, at the same time. So I think in lieu of actually feeling like you're coming, like you're arriving somewhere, I do think a lot of people wind up with this sense of, oh, well, I can quantify it by talking about how many books I've read. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, if I just, if I get through, I remember there were always people like this in at least seminary, less so in PhD world, but sometimes. But they'd be like, oh, well, I've read this many pages today. I have to read 2,000 pages a day. And I'm like, oh, are you absorbing them, though? Mm -hmm. you, know, you, can, you can quantify it by saying you've read that many, but maybe you're not actually improving your skill or your, your depth of knowledge by having read that much that fast. Yeah, yeah, that's totally right. Uh, there's a weird expertise that may come about actually by not having read everything. Uh, because yeah. you're not going to have it Weirdly. all in your head. And yeah, I, I, my work was on Baltazar for the PhD and I've not really gotten to teach it, uh, because I've taught other things as, as my, as Pfeiffer has needed. And it's yeah. weird how rusty it's getting. I look back and I'm like, uh, you know, because I haven't taught it. You really yeah. can't, no one has all of Aquinas in their head and, and no one no. has looked at all these things or Bart and people specialize and they move on. And, and it's almost like a different era it's kind of depressing because I, well, we didn't but, plan this, but I, you know, it's, it's sort of like the Olympics, which we mentioned briefly at the beginning. Oh, we did plan, you know, see, see, yeah, no, we do. Strange this enough. Is, we never planned anything. <laughs> this is all scripted. We're just reading. I mean, see Michael Phelps in 10 years, uh, you know, he's, uh, I'm not, even if he's the same height, weight, whatever, if he hasn't, you know, ballooned out, he, he's <laughs> not going to jump into, him. he's not going to, yeah. <laughs> Gotta get some Wendy's. <laughs> the Axel Rose. Uh, but he's not going to jump into a pool and be able to swim anywhere close to the same, it, yeah. whether it's time, you know, all that stuff. Same thing. You know, if, if, if it's, it's like a, it's like a practiced thing. If you want to remain an expert in something, it means you keep working at it. It doesn't mean you arrive and suddenly you have the flashcards in your head and you can, you know, master something. One of the Cambridge faculty told us that when we started one of those orientation bits, they said, you know, your thesis dissertation, it's not your your, your magisterial work. It's just a beginning. Yeah. It, it's a yeah. start, you know, cause he said, you've only, you're only going to spend three years on it. And that to me sounded huge, but we have scholars working for decades. And so no one's expecting it to be, uh, you know, some sort of massive summary. They're just wanting to see, can you do yeah. research? Well, can you make an original contribution? Um, and, and can you get the scope right? And, and therefore it's, you know, it's good. That's, that's what they're looking yeah. for. Uh, and part of it's knowing those pressure points, and I think we've talked some about this, but in, in teaching theology, what are the major issues? What are the things that come up again and again? The question of Christology, yeah. the question 
of you know sacraments and and questions salvation, salvation. Yeah. and and once you know the major discussion you may forget what origin said but at least when they're talking about it you you have that reference bit in your head you're like oh yeah this what this is really about is this yes. major argument it's, it's actually really arguments yeah no it's it's tendencies like it's it's always uh overlapping tendencies i always tend to find like so the the problem isn't which single Christology argument is the best? It's rather what issues keep coming up because of the way Christology works. Yeah. Whether it's the you know human and divine problem, you know how, how do you bring those two together? Not not very easily. Mm-hmm. That's right. Whatever it is, you know. So the instinct is to go one way or the other, and knowing that the instincts are one way or the other, whether it, as you said it's from Origin or Aquinas or whomever. Well, then you know where the tendency is. So then, yeah, 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 if somebody's talking about it in modern systematic categories, it doesn't feel like a question that's as unwieldy as if you just... I remember, yeah, when I was in undergrad or something, if I heard somebody just randomly talking about something, it'd always be like, what? what? Where is this coming from? I don't know. Right, is this right, new? Yeah. Is this old? I have no idea. But... The older I got with a subject, the more I was like, okay, this is a, a modified attempt to deal with this issue and, you know, whatever it is. And it started to make a lot more sense. It started to come together. I started to feel like I could understand it. But at no point did I feel like it, the question was one of mastery. Yes. No, it's not. It's, it's an awareness, a growing in awareness. Um, students, undergrads sort of sometimes sort of think and they'll say, gosh, you're so smart to me yeah. and I'm sort of thinking no I'm a fraud I've just been reading it long I've been reading it longer than you've been alive so right. so I've got a lot of experience uh-huh. here that you you just started 2 weeks ago so of course you think yeah. that bard is pronounced barth everyone does if you're from America when you start out and so it's with experience and like you said the tendencies of the discussion once you know those parameters then you can kind of figure out where someone's coming from you can kind of label it you can jump in even though you really have forgotten it or you don't know it or something you can kind of i don't know find your way around it's almost like a city and it's changed but you yeah. can find your way around it somehow your very own sim city very own sim, sim city of theology who would build a good city in sim city among the theologians uh aquinas really totally why oh i don't know I'm just <laughs> <laughs> uh Actually, I don't think the guy really left his study very much, so probably not him. Yeah. yeah. Bart's, Bart's would be very organized, and, but, very un, organized but unfinished because yeah. he never finished the Holy Spirit bit. So there'd be, would just Luther's be, would be just a chaotic hot mess. <laughs> It'd just be, you know, tear that down, put it up over here now. You know. And Baltazar would be the same way. Like, I'm going to start on this, but I'm, I'm going to spend 40 pages on this other thing because that's what I was thinking about today. So there would just be a, there would be a post office and he'd be, be a post office in the McDonald's. Is Balthazar that way? He's like uh, episodic, like he just moves where he wants well, to go. He's kind of a messy thinker. He's he's okay. organized in a way, but he he's kind of he's messy. You know, he's a really interesting guy in that he's such an outsider. He he was a yeah. priest who never served a church. He never really had an academic post. He was a chaplain, but he was never a really? professor of theology. So he's very kind of um, was he was he sort of famous posthumously, or would the was he actually recognized in his lifetime? He was beginning to be recognized in his lifetime. He was liked, but he was kind of this outsider. Uh, he'd partly yoked his career to Adrian von Speer, this uh, German woman who had these ecstatic visions, and huh. he thought. Um, 
he was kind of her personal theological guide and uh, she was an outsider too. So part of it is his, his circumstances and choices made him a bit on the outside. He actually got in trouble and they, um, they didn't like him for a bit within the Catholic church. And he was a priest without an appointment kind of, so he, but then later in his life, just before he dies, he gets made Cardinal, but he dies before he is, um, incarnated, I think is the term. So he's not made Cardinal, but he's elected. (laughs) I know. It's so sweet. So his, his, uh, and he was kind of an outsider of Vatican II. Rahner was much more into Vatican II, and Baltazar was not really invited as as much as Rahner. And uh, so, anyway, all that's to say that um, Baltazar would probably build a messy city. He definitely went rogue. He'd probably like Sarah Palin in a way, going rogue. What was he important with in Catholic theology? Like, what was he a return to something? Was he a new exploration of something? I, mean, I know his his stuff on aesthetics was amazing, but I would have thought, just as a novice, that Catholics would have been better at aesthetical thinking before him in general. Maybe they weren't. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I'll try to answer it again. I'll I'll uh, qualify it by saying this stuff is a bit rusty for me. Um, but yeah, uh, you did, you just kind of, you kind of teed it up by saying that. Now I'm I that know, I know. So <laughs> why, and as unusual in my career, why stop now? So. Well, all my friends who are into aesthetics, he was like the the oh, finally guy. Like we have a guy that's a real deep well, thinker on aesthetics. You know, he, you know? his uh, glory of the Lord. He really is trying to do a history of Western aesthetics, and although certainly the aesthetic sensibility is throughout the Catholic tradition, I don't think anyone has really tried to write five volumes on the glory of the Lord in Western literature and drama so he's kind of got this vision and this work that that is uh i think that's why he's such an important influence on catholic aesthetics but he also is one that was championing origin back when no one read him so he's important for the recovery of origin he produced a um kind of a reader of origin spirit and fire back when everyone just thought origin was weird and um, kind of an outsider uh, so some of that work, and uh, he was concerned with that resourcement and returning to the church fathers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and in my interest cool. was reading tragic drama for for theolo- theological interest. That Hegel had done it a little bit, but no one else was really into that as much. Maybe Donald McKinnon about the same okay. time, but um, definitely Donald McKinnon. But um, but Baltasar is really interested in tragedy as a theological resource. Huh. Yeah. Well, that makes total sense. Yeah, it makes, I mean, I think you're right. I think probably the, the instinct was there, but never considered as a, 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 an actual thing that's talked about, if I guess is the way to put it. You know, there's just not enough time spent on that, I guess. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Semester good? Yeah, the summer was good. About to finish up, start the fall. How about you? When the classes start? Or they have? About two weeks. Two yeah, weeks. There's one more one more week of my summer class, and then there's a couple more things. I see. I have to start putting on pants. The fall is here. <laughs> we started Monday, so there's been a lot of uh, confused, terrified freshmen wandering around. Like, where's the fourth floor? Oh. To, where's room 102? And they just Where do I eat? so terrified. Yeah. You really can tell the freshmen just by the look of panic. If they didn't look panicked, oh. they could be seniors, but they're just... Oh. And I remember. I don't blame them. It's not their fault. No, it's not their fault. But I, I remember I thought I was actually pretty put, like, doing all right, pretty cool. And I was a freshman. Was probably thinking that is what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there's some. I'm sure there's some that are that way. But many of them are, you know, I mean, they, they just left high school a few months ago. It's a pretty huge shift. 
All right, man. Okay. Good times. Good talk. Yeah. All right. Good night, Denmark. We we love you. <laughs>